All right, so this is Chris Wagner with another episode of 100% Lawyerings. Uh, my guest today is Mike Roscoe. Uh, before we jump into it, uh, the disclaimers that I usually give out are that, let's see, this is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Uh, this is not to be construed as legal advice because neither he nor I have really researched anything in order to have this conversation today. We're just sitting down and talking. Uh, and additionally, uh, none of the things that we are going to be saying in this podcast are going to be or should not be implied to create any kind of lawyer-client relationship. Uh, again, being this is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Uh, we don't know your issues, um, if you even have any issues, but uh, you know, give us a call if you need help with anything. So, uh, how's it going, Mike? Very good. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. I'm uh, happy to uh, contribute here. Yeah, man. Um, so why don't you tell um, people who are listening a little bit about what kind of law you practice? Right, so currently, I am the uh, Assistant General Counsel and the General Counsel's Office of the Agency for Healthcare Administration. Um, that's the entity in Florida that regulates every healthcare facility, from hospitals, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, adult family care homes, and so on. So uh, that's, and we're in the regulatory unit. So the agency is split in two. They have the regulatory side that regulates the entities, um, the licensure. <clears throat> so we impose fines, uh, revoke licenses, depending on how bad things get. And then the other half is Medicaid administration. Uh, that's not something that I have to deal with here in the St. Pete office, but um, that's the other half of the agency, uh, the ones dispersing those funds and collecting them when they've overpaid, things like that. So, so the Medicaid, uh, is that like, would they be doing the similar similar work that you're doing just in only, it would only involve Medicaid? So it would be more lawyers doing, you know, legal things and litigating and that kind of, that kind of stuff? They would, they would still litigate it and any issues that they have the same way that we would, I, you know, you have the, all the different options um, in Florida administrative law, which I'm assuming is probably similar to federal administrative laws. Um, I don't know how much of this you, you've done or had any experience with, but not much. Um, no. So once an administrative agency takes an action, you have uh, three weeks to respond and you can respond by just admitting what you did, paying the fines, whatever we say you owe, and that's just admitting liability. Uh, you can say that you agree to everything, but I want to contest the penalty and I want to somehow mitigate the damages here. Or you could just say, like, I disagree with everything you say and I want to take it to trial. So if we go to trial, the Medicaid side and the regulatory side, we do both go to DOA or the Department of Administrative Hearings, Division of Administrative Hearings. Okay. Um, how many... How many attorneys does this administrative body employ? Like, how many of your colleagues are there? Well, there are nine attorneys in the St. Pete office. I'm not exactly sure how many uh, in the Tallahassee office. They have at least that many, if not more. Uh, they cover a smaller section of the state as far as the regulatory side, but they do all of the Medicaid. So uh, there are a lot more Medicaid cases, but the St. Pete office and these nine attorneys cover anywhere from uh, Gainesville, maybe even some in Jacksonville, all the way to Key West. That's you? You guys go up from Gainesville right, down to Key West? everywhere. Ordinarily, uh, you know, outside of pre-COVID or anything like that, we will be traveling the state, going to the hearings and depositions or whatever we need to do. That's cool. But now everything's online. Well, right, yeah. I mean, definitely a brave new world out there with, with uh, the Zoom meetings and depositions and, and so on and so forth. I don't know if I told you this, but um, I took a um, – and it's, it's available on – I don't know if you've – 
ever gotten on like the the Florida bar has like a um I'm, I'm gonna get it wrong they have like a nice little like one-liner but you know it, it's like a small um small firm solo firm uh page oh, yeah, and they have a lot of like CLE stuff on there and one of the CLEs that they just put out there I think it was last week it was last week was on zoom depositions and it was really actually pretty interesting I mean they spent like the first 20 minutes just kind of talking about the transition from you know, from being in court all the time, like we used to be to, you know, doing everything via, via zoom, you know, being remote. And, you know, just since, you know, maybe not everybody's done a deposition before that might be listening to this, the old way, and I'm sure that we'll all go back to this more or less, you know, once COVID kind of calms down, but the old way was when we had a deposition, everyone was generally in the same room. So that would mean you would have your witness, you would have at least two attorneys, but it was not unusual to have three or four and you would have your court reporter as well. And if you were going to video it, you would have a videographer as well. So, you know, sometimes you get pretty crowded. I know that I've been in a couple of like doctor's offices where they put us in like this little like kind of side closet and you've got like six people all crammed in there. Um, but nowadays, you know, you don't even have to do that. You know, you can do everything remotely. Everyone can be literally can do a deposition from their home now. And that of course creates issues because, you know, if you're not via video, how can you verify that the person you're talking to is in fact, John Smith or, you know, Jane Apple or whoever. Right, and we have had some of those issues already, um, you know, having to do everything remotely. But uh, depending on the attorney, I mean, and also the clients and the witnesses and things like that, it just, it, it really changes how you want to do this. I'm, I have done, I have taken the depositions and defended them um, over the Zoom, uh, using the Zoom meetings, but. There are some of them you really just want to be that person. Yep. Like if you're defending one, you might really want to be there with that guy. Yep. To, I mean, because it, there's so much that they don't understand if they don't understand exactly how to use it. It's not very complicated, yep. but I mean, it doesn't mean that maybe they might forget to mute the microphone whenever they're talking or forget to turn off the screen or do and say something they shouldn't. I mean, it's just, it's, it is definitely really complicated. It just means spending a lot more time with them before to make sure that they understand exactly how everything's going to go in the middle of it. Because it's not like they're used to it either. Most of my clients that are the agency surveyors and the team leaders and things like that. So, I mean, they've done this many, many times. And so, but having not the Zoom hearings, they've done everything in person. So this is all new for them. So what kind of things are you telling them? Like, you know, what kind of things, how are you prepping them, I guess? Well, and uh, as far as like the technology thing, I mean, that's, that's really what I'm stressing with them exactly how these things work. I mean, it's not very complicated. I mean, you just turn it on, you join the meeting, and it's, you know, if we're taking a break, if we're walking away, if it's ending, you mute it, you turn everything off, you know, when you walk away from it, and then you turn it on. I, you know, I, I have had it where I will give them a call separately, and I'm like, I'm going to tell you when to get into this. Otherwise, just stay away from it. Don't say anything near it or anything like that. Um, but, I mean, but as far as, like, uh, you know, what they do during the deposition. Other than that, it's just preparing them the same way as if you would in person. I mean, you know, your regular prep. Yeah. So, yeah, because I've only had one. I actually had an EUO, which is, I don't know if you know what an EUO is. It's an examination under oath. So basically what an EUO is, is it's, most people don't know this, but when you sign up for your auto insurance, you agree under breach contract rules or just contract law in general, you agree to submit to a sworn affidavit, which basically ends up becoming a deposition. Um, for there, There's multiple reasons that they do it, but when I was on the defense side, I was doing like medical fraud investigation. So what would happen was 
auto insurer would decide that Dr. Smith or Dr. Smith's organization, we'll say Dr. Smith Corp or something like that, right? The Dr. Smith Corp, is, they think is engaging in fraudulent activity for whatever reason, right? So in order, and they do, insurance companies under the laws of the state of Florida have an actual affirmative duty to investigate insurance fraud. So they actually have to do this sort of thing, but they, they relish it, they love doing it. So anyway, so what they do is once they decide that, okay, we're gonna be looking at Dr. Smith Corp, all right, well, every single case, every single claim that's made that the you know potential plaintiff or the ex, it's not even their it's not even a plaintiff against them necessarily it's just they're insured right because it has to be you know whoever you are using as your insurance so you know as you well know typically when you're suing somebody the first person you sue is the other guy not your insurance company but it's your insurance company that you may have no interest in suing them but they're going to like drag you in and have you a sworn affidavit on the record that's you know can be used as an impeachable against you because they want to know everything there is to know about how Dr. Smith Corp treated you. Usually they want to know about treatment and bills. That's usually what they want to get that into. So anyway, I had one of those, like one of the first car accident cases I had when I was at the firm and uh, they wanted to do an EUO. And I tried for like a month straight to get them to admit that's what they were doing because I've never heard of them doing it for any other reason other than investigating fraud. Because why would they, you know? And I was trying to tell them, listen, like you're, you're, you're going to, my client is an honest and honorable person. Of all the clients that I've had in my career, I'm really not that worried about her doing anything or saying anything false or misleading or, or hyperbolic. But at the same time, like, you know how it goes. You know, if you say one thing is a little bit different, you know, six months from now, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna talk about it. And, yeah, and, and it may not be like the end of your case, it probably won't be, but I don't want that out there if I can keep that from being out there. So anyway, it was a, it ended up being a Zoom. It ended up being a Zoom EUO. And uh, opposing counsel didn't even like have his video turned on. You know, he just had like the black screen with his name. <laughs> so um, so I have had a little bit of experience with it, which, you know, like, I, I, you know, kind of what you were saying, like I still just prepped her as normal. Like, frankly, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even tell her to make sure that it was muted or anything like that. But we didn't take any breaks. It was only like an hour and a half long. It was pretty, pretty, pretty tame. Um, but one of the things um, that I thought was pretty interesting that I learned from that CLE was to instruct, you know, whether it's your witness or the person, I think more importantly, it's the person that you're deposing, that if anybody walks into the room, that you're, you're to immediately announce that there's someone else in the room and that, you know, what their name is and that they're, that they're to appear on on camera and make sure that you know if there's anybody else in the room. I had never even thought to do that. Actually, that's a really good point. I didn't, I did not think about doing that either. I mean, in the cases that I've had, it's against uh, one, uh, it's local attorney. Most of the defense counsel um, in cases that the agency has against facilities, um, most of them end up being the same people. There's not that many law firms in Florida that represent uh, you know, facilities, there are plenty that represent uh, hospitals. Maybe they're in-house counsel. Yeah. Major firms or something. Right, like right, right, yeah. But as far as, like, the smaller facilities, most of them can't really afford to pay a whole lot. Uh, so, and there's not, so there's not that many firms getting into the business. So, uh, but it, depending on who you're sitting across from, I mean, I didn't have any issues or anything like that with, you know, everybody not being in the camera or maybe the other side, you know, kind of, signaling to the person what to say or what not to say or anything like that but i'm sure you know 
I mean, you, you, if we do this long enough, you're going to run into somebody who's right. going to be like, no, 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 I want everybody in here. Like everybody, I can see everybody. And all right. That. So, or like looking down at your cell phone, you know, it's like, are you getting text messages from opposing <laughs> counsel or from like somebody else? Like, like that, like the old, uh, what was it like, you know, you watch those old cartoons or whatever. They'd be, at, the kids would be at a spelling bee and the mom would be like outside, like in a van, like looking through the dictionary. They have like a little thing in their ear. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I mean that can I can see that uh, you know definitely being an issue. I don't know how exactly you know when they've come across that, how they've been dealing with that. And I mean that sounds like I mean that's a, a great idea. I didn't even think about that. I have to tell people that I've also done some of them over the phone, which I really hate doing. I don't like doing that at all. I don't like that I cannot see yep. them. I mean I can't see their body language. I mean. You know, if they're lying flat out, it's pretty easy. You know, they're going to stumble across everything. But it's so much better to sit there across from them and ask them questions over there. Yeah. There's just something that, I mean, something that provides that doing it over the phone. And even even in the Zoom calls, when you see them online and stuff like that, I just see your shoulders up and everything like that. And, I don't, you know, there's so much missing that I wouldn't get to see in person. So I'm really looking forward to getting back to that. Yeah, same here. Same here. It always perplexed me, too, when – there would be attorneys that would be like a plaintiff's deposition or, I mean, cause I was on the defense side, so it would never be, it would never be, well, no, there were a couple of plaintiff's depositions where I would go, right. And I'm deposing the plaintiff from the defense side and their attorney would be there. They would just appear over the phone. I, I, I just, that, that still like perplexes me that that would happen. Like, especially now as a plaintiff's attorney, like I can't imagine like getting like that far up into the clouds where I'm just like, you know what? Like, I'll disappear over the phone. It'll be fine. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe they're like, maybe, they, maybe their client, like they have, they're so busy that, and that client is so far down the totem pole of, of importance of cases that they just have more important things to do. But man, I, I can't imagine like, I can't imagine getting to that point because like I try to be client focused. That's why I switch to the side. I like, I like having somebody that I represent. I, I just can't imagine getting to that point. I would like to think that if I got to that point that I'd hire an associate you like you better go to the you better go to the, the deposition of our client protect them yeah we really don't have that option uh not with the agency everybody's the same it's all just the one client so uh and also it's really difficult getting so these same people uh almost anybody that would get deposed like if we're defending these uh, depositions then anybody that would get deposed at the agency are the people that appear in the facilities to do the inspections and we call them surveys. Okay. These are surveyors that actually show up that are trained on the Florida rules and regs to walk in and, you know, like, are you doing everything? Are you washing your hands the way you're supposed to? Or for example, like COVID is a perfect example, everything now, you know, are you checking people's temperature when they walk in? Are you wearing your mask? Are the residents, the patients wearing their masks and things like that? Mm-hmm. And uh, so those individuals, those are the ones that are always taking and taking the heat when it comes to deficit or even trial or anything like that. Uh, so, but it's really tough sometimes to get them into the litigation part because these things sometimes happen a year, a year and a half later. So, I mean, they've been in multiple facilities every day for the last year and a half. They don't know. They don't remember that. They could, you know, there's a lot they don't remember. So they take notes for everything and then you got to train them over again, but it's a lot to take them away from the work that they have to do every day just to get ready for this. Have you had to deal with uh, any cases that involve the like like an outbreak of COVID? Uh, yes. I, well, actually, I have only just started doing this, but we've had other attorneys in the office who've been doing this for uh, months now. And yes, it's uh, all over 
the state. It's really difficult for most of these facilities. They just don't, and also uh, like have, I mean, I would say not experienced with the way that it is now, but I mean, just from my own experience, I was a nurse. This is my second career. Okay. Career. So I was a nurse uh, prior to going to law school. Okay. And uh, mostly long-term care, rehab, worked at a prison, uh, things like that. So this is this new, you know, position that I'm in. It's, uh, you know, a little bit like home, I guess. It's a lot more familiar to me. Okay. All right. Sense. That's cool. I had no idea. Yeah. How long um, did you do that for? Uh, about seven years. Wow. Okay, cool. Nice. Yeah. All right. So the, but the only thing I could think of is like in most of these facilities, the thing outside of like hospitals, so nursing homes, all the way down to things, you know, like assisted livings and adult family care homes and things were just, you know, and I'm not sure what people think of these things like assisted living facilities in Florida, thousands, thousands of facilities in Florida. Okay. Most of the elderly population, that's where they're getting their care. Uh, if, if, you, if you need it. And assisted living is there just to provide you with literally just exactly what it says assistance with activities of daily living things like getting dressed showering feeding uh, reminding you to take your medicine things like that okay most of these things i mean i don't know when people see this on a commercial or something like that they might think it's like a, a building of a facility or a small hospital looking thing but it's not i mean most of them are houses okay think of like a, you know a big house a four or five bedroom house in a neighborhood they go in they buy it or they lease it they open up a facility and they just put people in the rooms. Okay. And so, I mean, like, when you think of, like, you know, somebody coming in with COVID in that situation, I mean, you're sharing rooms, you're sharing the house, it's probably going to get bad. And just like it is in the nursing homes, they don't have, like, negative pressure rooms and things like that, to, or, you know, that kind of isolation. So the best you could do is maybe they stay in their room, but because this is an airborne virus, I mean, like, this is a really big issue. So, oh, yeah, I mean, we're having big time issues especially i mean and all the smaller ones to the bigger ones uh the most recent one i think was a facility with a, between 40 and 50 uh patients and they had about 40 people test positive wow yeah so and, wow and in fact that's where a lot of the numbers are coming from in florida okay uh i mean it's that's not hidden that's uh you know public information ACA puts that out separately i think the department of health is the one that has the dashboard thing going they're the ones maintaining that but huh. ACA also publishes its information too uh and what's ACA? that's uh, that's sorry that's the acronym for agency for healthcare administration okay aca okay is um, that federal or is that just statewide this is just state okay um like i said the, the medicaid side is kind of like almost like arm in arm with the uh, Department of Health and Human Services on the federal side. Mm -hmm. But as far as our regulatory stuff that we do, this is strictly just the state of Florida okay. and the licenses we issue and things like that. So it's not nothing to do with the federal side. So do you know like what the rough, rough percentage of like, I guess, positive COVID cases are that are coming out of like these healthcare facilities? I don't know what the percentages are. I just know that they make up like a very, very large number. There's a list, and I think, and I can't remember, I don't know if DOH has it or ACA is the one that publishes it, but we have, like it's a running list that has, you know, this facility that's out there. Uh, I'm not even sure if they actually have the exact names on it or if it's just a location by county or something like that. But they'll have, you know, how many people are testing positive there and things like that. And it's... I mean, it is a really big number and it's spreading really fast just because there's, I mean, you can do, we expect them to do the minimum possible. We want, you know, you, you wear your gloves and your mask and you check the temperatures and you do right. what you need to do. But like I said, there's only so much you can do in a really small house. I mean, 
We do expect you to do those minimums. It doesn't mean it's not going to spread. And so in the end, I mean, that's that's really what you get is you get a facilities, you know, getting a, a lot tested positive. So, I mean, it's a, it's a bad situation. So then are you guys, like, investigating, like, the – I would imagine that you're investigating into whether or not the facilities could have prevented the outbreak within itself, correct? Right, but not necessarily if they could have, but when we go in, like if there's an issue, uh, we, like I said, we just, we're expecting that you're going to do the minimums. Mm-hmm. If we walk in and like the surveyors, when, when they get in there, they do announce themselves, but it takes time. They got to walk in the door and things like oh, that. Oh, so they can just like drop in like whenever they want to, just like check things out? Correct. Right? All right. They have to drop in unannounced. It, it's a, it's actually a crime. I think somebody in South Florida had gotten in trouble for it. Uh, it was like all kinds of fraud charges for letting facilities know and get a kickback huh. for when the state's Well, kickbacks, you can see that. Obviously, right. that's not right. right. so great. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, we cannot, nobody can know when the surveyors are going to drop by for the very reason that we just want to drop by in your element and we want to see if you're doing everything the way you're supposed to be doing. And it, it's not so much that the positive tests that, that are that are a concern as far as the regulations. I mean, it is a concern, right? Because, you, I mean, it doesn't mean we don't want new people coming in here if you have 40 people in the building test positive. But, right. Um, but we want to make sure you're doing the minimums. Like, if you are, you definitely need to be, you know, checking people's temperature. If you know you have somebody that's positive, they should be on one side. Right. And everybody else should be on the other. Like, you, you know, you don't sit, you know, like right next to each other on the couch watching TV right. when, you know, you know for a fact somebody's positive. And they're not wearing a mask or anything like that. So we right. no we common area yells or anything like that, right? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that is that's taken up a large portion of the right. of the agencies of the agencies, you know, that their time now, especially the surveys, because they're just trying to make sure that everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. I mean good. the governor's orders and everybody's orders went out months ago, but every facility doesn't have like a an attorney or a consultant or somebody there to say like Make sure you do yeah, this, this and that and the other. Are, yeah, right. Yeah. They don't all have that. Um, and to be an administrator of a facility, at least an assisted living facility in the state of Florida, you don't have to do a whole lot. It's like a one or two day class. Uh, then you can open up a facility. You can run it on your own. Um, so some people just don't have the ability to understand all of the uh, rules and regulations imposed on these facilities. It sounds kind of like foster, like foster parents. Like minimal training, minimal qualifications, and then you can just kind of like, you know, take a stab at it, you know, and hope that it works out okay for you, you know? Right. It's kind of like that. I mean, they, they do have to put something in it, right, because they do have to have the facilities. you got to provide some things and stuff like that. But you're getting, I mean, they're, they're not charging any small fees for this to be. In fact, the smallest one that I've seen is about $2,500 a month. Okay. Um, per person? Per, yeah, per person. So if you think like in the wrong line of work. Five or six <laughs> yeah, that's quite a bit per month. Yeah, it's not a huge turnover if you think that you know, like you're doing everything you're supposed to. Think about giving them all the food and all the transportation, yeah, and the, everything that they need. But you know, like so we oxygen stuff, because, right? Medicine, yeah, yep. nursing facility, probably nurses and stuff, and we're everything. Not so much. I mean, like in assisted livings, at least they don't really need that much. They shouldn't need that much. Okay, they shouldn't need a lot of care. Like you, somebody to remind you to do things and um, fix your meals for you and stuff like that. But um, even then, though, if you're if you're providing that for everybody, you should be using probably a lot of that, a lot of those funds that you're bringing in. But unfortunately, in a lot of facilities, it's not the case. You might be getting minimal care for the money you're bringing in, or maybe the money they're charging Medicaid. So uh, that's where we come in. 
to make sure you're doing it. If you're not, we'll cite you for it. After the surveyors get in there to do what they do, it's a huge loop. Like it goes through quite a few people. It goes all the way, but we have uh, 11 area offices in Florida uh, between Pensacola and Key West. Most of the cases come out of Miami just because that's where most of the people are in Florida. So they are in Orlando. Yeah. That's where most of them are. Okay. Um, and so after it makes its way up there, after they do everything, they send it up to Tallahassee, they give it to us, the council's office in Tallahassee, they send it down to St. Pete, and then we finally issue the complaint. And that's where the legal action gets started. They're usually a little bit confused about that because this is happening a year after they've been cited. Okay. All right. So they forgot about it. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like, you're, what? This is like, you know, this happened a year or two ago. You know, like, <laughs> they're like, no, 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 no. That was the ticket. Think of it like I have to explain it that way all the time. That was the ticket that the police officer wrote. Mm -hmm. Now I'm coming to you telling you it's time to pay up. Okay. All it right. just took really, really long to get around to it because this is a really big agency and there's a lot of people and things don't happen overnight. The wheels of justice turn slowly. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. Especially if you're not in like criminal, like, you know, everything but criminal, it turns slowly. Criminal's the only one that like you can kind of do things quickly because there's statute, not statute. Well, no, it is statute limitations, but it's the right to a speedy trial, right? You know, it's, I think if I, if I can recall correctly, I know it was 90 days for, uh, for like county court misdemeanors, but for felonies, I want to say it was, I want to say it was 180 days. I think it was just double that amount. So if you don't waive, state's got to pony up within half a year, roughly, or your case gets dropped, you know? So, you know, that was my thing. Like when I was a public defender, I never waived speedy trial and just hit them with volume, man. Yeah. I try to get them done because otherwise I'm going to drown, you know? So if it was, you know, an easy-ish case, which most county court cases are fairly easy, you know, you get your police report, that's about all you need. You get no right to depositions or anything like that when you have county court cases, which all misdemeanors are county court cases. So, you know, you don't have to worry about setting depositions and you're the defense attorney, so... It's, the state's got the burden to provide all the evidence. They have to disclose all the evidence to you. Otherwise, it's a Brady violation. They can get the case dismissed for not complying with Brady. So, yeah, I would just set everything and just, you know, see what happened. You know, <laughs> were they going to drop it? Were they, you know, they give me a sweetheart deal? You know, do we plea out? You know, whatever. You know, just usually it was just the uh, all you needed was the police report. And that was really it. Sometimes I'd call the victims if it was domestic violence battery or something like that. I'd give them a call if it seemed like it was one of those, like, you know, the wife was mad at the husband because he was drinking too much and talk, you know, acting a fool. And she just decided that she needed him out of the house for a night, which happens a lot more than you might think that it does. But, um, I mean, even, I think even after like the first six months of me being at the public defender's office, I stopped doing that. Cause it was like, if they, if they don't want this to happen, they're just not going to show up at trial. Like the, I know the state attorneys, I'm not going to go to the state attorney and go to the state attorney and say, listen, I talked to, you know, Jane Smith on the phone. She's not going to come. Or whatever she said that she lied. The state attorney's gonna be like, well, "We'll see what happens at the trial." Like that's what it would happen. So like I, I, I saved my, I would save myself fifteen or twenty minutes of calling somebody, just you know, I'd find out that way, you know. Or they'd call me and just leave me a message and say like, "This is BS. I'm not gonna, that I can't believe that they charged him. Like this is a big misunderstanding. You know, like they, you know, whatever, whatever the case might be." Now, whenever you were doing those cases, did you, um, did the ASAs, the assistant state attorney, did mm -hmm. they have any discretion to? You know, change anything or anything like that as far as like you know working out things, working out any kind of deals, change of time or even charges. It was minimal. It was minimal. It was an issue. It really was an issue um, because I had almost carte blanche to do whatever I wanted to. Mm -hmm. The guy who was my boss, um, I'll say his name because I 
because he's the best. I love the guy, Doug Reynolds. He's like one of my mentors, like when I first got started. And frankly, you know, even though I don't really have much to ask him these days, I mean, if I ever had an issue, like I would, wouldn't hesitate to go back to the guy and ask him for advice. He's just, I consider myself fortunate to have been able to learn underneath him. Like that's how good he was. Anyway, um, he pretty much let us do whatever we wanted to, you know, so long as we weren't doing anything unethical, which we weren't. And, um, his one rule was don't wave speedy. That was pretty much it, you know? So, you know, outside of that, it was, you know, get in there and try some cases, but he didn't even really care if we tried cases. Uh, Blaze, the public defender was the one that put the, you know, he, he asked that he wanted us to do like 12 trials a year was his, what he asked for, but most, most of us didn't. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, got in there and just started swinging, you know, like just throwing, throwing it at the wall and seeing what stuck. I was just wondering, like, if there's, yeah, I've only heard this, I've, I've never worked in criminal law or anything like that, um, so, uh, but as far as, like, the discretion that some of them have, because I've, I've only heard that locally here, uh, at least in Pinellas County, they have very, uh, Sixth Circuit, they have uh, no no discretion to change anything, and I've, as far as I know, I think that they, it's always supposed to be the max or something like that. That was my, that was my experience with the state attorneys, it wasn't the max. But I mean, don't get me wrong, like, they maxed out some people, but um, anytime that there was a, like I would go to them and I was able to convince the state attorney that they need to lower the plea offer either well below what they were offering me or to whatever it was that I wanted. It was not unusual for them to say, hold on, let me go call my boss. And they would go call the their misdemeanor supervisor, their Doug, and get approval for it. Okay. And sometimes they'd get it and sometimes they wouldn't. So I never had to do that. Doug didn't care. So it was kind of awesome like that because I was able to do what I thought was right in the situation, not what I thought Doug wanted me to do in the situation, which was kind of kind of crazy to think. Like I'm coming straight out of law school and I'm pretty much in court with my own, I guess, wits trying to make it work, you know? But of course, the, one of the major differences between like what I'm doing now and what I was doing then is that back then, it's young attorneys going up against other young attorneys, right? You know, like if you had been at the public defender's office for six months or longer as a county court attorney doing misdemeanors, you were like a vet at that point, right? It's the same, It was the same as state attorneys though, right? Because most of the time, like the, the average lifespan, at least in Brevard, the average lifespan of an attorney in misdemeanor was about two years. And then you would either get another job somewhere else, which is what I ended up doing, or you get promoted to felony. And then once you get into the felonies, that's when you have a lot more oversight and there's a lot more, okay, you know, we need to actually think about trying to like, you know, doing, do an investigation. Like, let's get, let's get a, let's get an investigator out there to try to like do some measurements and take some photos and you need to do depositions. And like when I left the public defender's office, I had done zero depositions. That was one of the questions that I got asked. Like I had like two rounds of interviews and they were like, have you ever done a deposition before? My, I, I don't know why I said this, but. I, I said, no, but I'm sure it's not that hard. I'm, I'm sure I can figure it out. <laughs> and like, I wasn't wrong, but like, that's pretty cocky. I mean, like, there's definitely an art to depositions, but like, and we've already, you know, been discussing them today, you know, but I just remember saying that and just like, I, I don't know why, like whenever I think about that interview, I think to that, that thing, that, that and they also, they asked me like, cause you know, I tried a lot of cases when at the public defender's office and they were like did you win? That was like one of the last, one of the last questions they asked me. And I was like, Oh yeah, <laughs> I didn't tell them that I lost like my first 10 cases, but then like I went on a win streak after that, but Hey, 
they didn't they didn't ask so you know also what's winning right like what it was like are we only talking about trials or are we talking about like you know we talk about everything because like i got a lot of really good deals for my clients you know but uh yeah it was i mean like i you know uh, those days were great but yeah but the 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 asas that i worked with like while most of them were great um and and, and i'm glad that i had the opportunity to practice with them actually one of the guys uh I, who was like one of my most bitter rivals uh i actually had on the podcast like a few episodes ago his name's jonathan templeton great guy he's a criminal defense attorney now but like the reason i hated him was because he was good and he didn't he didn't give in to me like i because i would like you know i would just like get in there like i wouldn't wave speedy so i just like you know punch, you know punch and punch and punch and punch and jonathan was one of the guys that was like you know he's honorable about it like he would if it was he was one of the guys that would like definitely go to his boss a lot more than some of the others like early on just be like listen like we need to get rid of this one now before we even get close to trial. Like, I don't even want to have to, to mess with this. So, you know, um, that was good. So, like, he was good at, like, calling out, like, all the, all the crap and keeping the ones that, that were strong for him. And then I would take a lot of crap to trial and end up losing. <laughs> but that's how you learn, right? That's true. Now, now I, I, when you were talking about the speedy trial there, that's reminded me because whenever I was talking about the, the way that the case progresses through the agency or the ACA, is that, that, that like that's the very beginning part so mm -hmm. that's almost like the arrest part but in uh to compare it though like once the case actually gets filed so once uh they respond uh so it, it's kind of odd it's not like you think of like in a civil case or like the, the case is started when the complaint served right um but that's not so much the same for administrative it is in a way that in the sense that they have three weeks to respond to the administrative complaint okay. but their response which is called EOR uh, explanation of review of rights rights okay that's what it is in my world election EOR is, is, is right. uh, review election of rights and that was the ones that I was talking about earlier you have those three options you can say I did this uh, I'll pay up I did this but I want to pay less okay or I'm denying all of this and we're going to trial um so that is really what gets it going because if they send it back and say uh say we go in to these covid you know these facilities looking for covid problems and we find some and we're responding pretty quickly to those now so this is not like a year later i mean this is a kind of an issue we want to address right away yeah um, the other ones are more like paperwork and things like that that's the kind of stuff we really drag on but like, like in these cases, so they'll send it back and say, you know what, I'm, I'm disputing all of this. I think that, you know, the surveyor was not telling the truth or the way you wrote it is not correct, you know. Mm. Um, from that to once they send that in, then it gets referred over to the Division of Administrative Hearings. And once the judge gets it there, um, you have 60 days to have the trial. So, okay. I mean, right. so essentially, so really... Uh, by the time everything gets going, by the time the, the legal battle gets started, it's not a long process. It is Six a long process. Very, very, very yeah. short. Right. Most of the time, you're going to get, you're going to have to push it out a little bit. So, how do you like get that. discovery done? We have it. So, once I get back an election of rights that says, I don't believe this, I'm going to trial, I prepare everything. I have oh. all of my discovery ready to go and all of my requests ready to go. So, then it's immediately, as soon as I get noticed that a, a, an ALJ or administrative law judge has the case, I send it out. But how do you, uh, what's the, what, what's, how do you, 
get discovery if they basically give you the finger and they tell you to go, you know, screw yourself. Well, in that way, I mean, we can move for continuances and stuff like that. We can, you know, we can stretch it out. And we would also let the ALJ know, too, like, this is going to be a problem. Now, think like these administrative trials and hearings, much different than civil or criminal in a way that they allow, they have so much more discretion to do things than like a circuit judge or a county judge. Okay. All right. I mean, they, they can allow things in that an ordinarily court would not be allowed, like hearsay, stuff like that. Interesting. They, they are allowed to gather so much information. Okay. Um, as long as, you know, there's other things to support it. Right. You know, for, hearsay is the biggest one. And our administrative, our, uh, or the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act in Florida, allows that, allows hearsay evidence, which is mostly what we have. Think of how that actually happens. The surveyors go out, let's say you're a resident of the facility, uh -huh. they ask you questions, and you tell me, well, this person's been doing something they shouldn't have. Well, I'm not going to ask you as the resident to come in and testify. I'll have the surveyor do that, but of course, it's hearsay. Interesting. So, I mean... But they, as long as you have other corroborating evidence and, you know, stuff like that to get it in, I mean, they have so much more discretion to do things, even like we were talking about earlier with the witnesses mm -hmm. appearing over the phone or like, so I had a Zoom trial last month. Um, very interesting experience and in that um, I probably was the individual most uh, well-versed in using Zoom and I'm not good at it at all. I'm not good at it. <laughs> But I, wait, I, but like roughly, how old was the other? Uh, was your uh, co-counsel? Well, my the, the guy that was trying the case with me is my age, but the guy on the other side, I mean, okay. actually, he was uh, he's in his forties, but he's uh, but he he did pretty well too. But the the judge and the <laughs> court reporter and the witnesses and everybody else was just a little bit. It was really rough. Okay, uh, getting through everything because I mean. Because it's a Zoom yeah, trial. It's, just, it's, it's a, a Zoom, Zoom trial. trial. It's not in person. They, either they haven't done it before, or uh, this is they have done it before in person, and now they're you know they're doing this online. That we're just trying to figure out how it works. One of the very first objections is because uh, one of the first witnesses we want to get them out of the way. They're calling in, and okay. I had worked for them oh, oh, for weeks trying to get them to use uh, Zoom in a way that would let me see them mm -hmm. and also uh, hear, you know, like set everything up. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the witnesses could only use it on their phone. And as much as I was able to try to work with the person, I only got camera capabilities, no audio. So I was like, okay, well, in the pre-hearing order from the judge, he says, well, you can call in too if you don't have video capabilities because he, he, in his mind, most everybody's going to be at home. Right. So you got him on Zoom, but he's calling in via, you know, whatever is Apple or, yeah, yeah. you know, so yeah. Zoom, you got the little phone thing up there and a number, and no, I can't see who it is or anything like that. Hmm. You call in, the other attorney, of course, is going to jump up and say exactly what they should. I, you know, how do I know who this is? I think, you know, we're, we, there's no way to verify this. They're not at the court reporter's office. They're not getting sworn in. And then the judge was really quick to remind everybody that the circuit court is bound by those uh, limitations. But administrative law judges have more discretion, plus along with the Florida Supreme Court's most recent order yep. to allow leadway as far as like getting proceedings carrying them on. And he's like, well, no, do you have a reason to think this is not them? If not, 
We're going on it. Yeah. <laughs> I think the I think the easy I think the easy answer to that question is for the person to pull their license out and like hold it up to the to the camera. Right. Because right. it'll obviously have a picture of them and it'll which is what they would normally I mean, maybe they would normally do that, but you they you would do it in deposition for sure. They always pull their license out and it verif the court reporter verifies who they are based on their license and then you move forward. I, I think that's a good workaround. Right. And that's that is the way that we were doing it for everybody that had the video and audio capability. That's the, and we only had that issue with uh, two witnesses. Maybe we had about ten or fifteen. Uh, nice. So that was. So you had ten or fifteen witnesses. Just you guys, in or in total? Yeah. Still, that's really good. That's a. That's a how it long was, was the trial? A week? Uh, three days. Oh wow! Dang, you guys killed through those witnesses. Uh, well, yeah, some of them were very brief. Most of the time. So, uh, interestingly, um, which I'm not sure. I'm sure, like the the general public might not be aware, but administrative law judges do not have the power of contempt. So, okay. while I, if I want to subpoena a witness that's not a part of it, so if they're a part of the agency, of course, I just tell their supervisor and they show up. <laughs> uh, show up or they'll fire you. <laughs> <laughs> but if they are uh, somebody's not associated with the agency, and I have to um, subpoena them, I can go to the ALJ. And have them issue a subpoena. Okay. But if 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 they don't comply with it, there's really there's no only so much that can be done. I mean, you know, it might be, uh, you know, if we can give them some other information to the judge to say, like, you know, this is potentially maybe like a worker or something like that. Somebody worked at the facility, and mm-hmm. you know, the other side is trying to keep them out, or you know, whatever. But I mean, there's not a whole lot we can do. We have to work with what we have, and so most of the time, that ends up being the surveyors that we have um, in the agency that's almost exclusively who we use uh, every now and then it might be police officers firemen uh, ems workers sometimes the workers in the facility you know or depending on who it was this happened to be a few workers uh former workers in the facility who like between the trial and the day of the incident that caused the trial they left the facility and decided to testify against them. do you mind talking about the facts of the case because i think it's it's interesting but um, if you don't want to that's that's, that's yeah cool. uh, well i mean i could uh yeah i think i could do that um so in this particular case we had a uh an individual who was uh, smoking uh, this is a assisted living facility, and they were smoking in their uh, bedroom, and they were also using oxygen. And, uh, of course, that led to problems. I think it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. It was an issue. It led to a fire. She burst mm-hmm. into flames. The room burst into flames. Um, the facility, uh, one of the workers heard it a few minutes later, decided to respond. I mean, went into the room to see what happened. The door was closed. So he goes into the room, opens up the door, of course, smoke starts pouring out. Um, and then they pull her out of the room and they start, you know, putting out the fire by grabbing like glasses and pictures of water and throwing on her, stuff like that. Um, the the biggest issue that the uh, the issue that the agency had, of course, was um, that it took too long. It took, I think I would say between seven and nine minutes uh, that the person was on fire. Um, so that took, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a long time when I think about yeah. like having my hand caught on the stove or something. Yeah, like that. I can't I mean, imagine. Like just for a Seven to minute. nine minutes. Right. And it's, I mean, it's just ball of flames. Uh, and, you know, nobody picks up the uh, fire extinguisher. 
try to put it out. Uh, some right blankets or something, like, like you know. Well, and the, they did try to do that. They picked up a blanket. Now, in these facilities, they say they call them comforters, but it's not the kind of comforters we use, like at home, those big, thick blankets. Yeah. They're very thin, uh, almost like just a little bit thicker than a rose sheet might be. Okay. Um, and like the ones you see, like a Hampton Inn or whatever, like those, yeah, like real yeah, thin brown yeah, ones. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. And they did they did go in there with one of those, uh, but the problem with that was, of course, it was not fire fireproof, and uh, the oxygen was feeding the fire. The blanket caught on fire. <laughs> it ended up called, making things a lot worse. Okay. Uh, so, um, I mean that. I mean that. That's that was a big part of it. The other part was that we just didn't think that they were. I mean, you had they had a whole lot of 50 people in the facility, and 50% of them were uh, smokers, and uh, we just didn't think that they were monitoring that well enough. I mean, you're not. I mean, you have people in here that have. It, it was also a limited mental health facility, meaning you know some of their individuals have, or some of the residents have mental health disabilities and things like that so they need a little bit more assistance and so we just thought i mean we're i mean it's i mean i don't think it takes you know too much to figure that out but if you have somebody who's maybe really confused or something like that then maybe they should should not probably keep their cigarettes and lighters <laughs> and things like that in their room especially if they're on oxygen so yeah yeah um, you know so i mean that's that's kind of where that's that was the the main part of this case and so it actually only cut most of the stuff in the trial covered that one day of events um, of course you know there's other things too like your policies and procedures or you know were they wrong were they were they not enough and things like that but that's what uh, most of the witnesses testified to uh, you know that we had in the hearing so uh, that one where we did finish the trial we don't have uh, an answer yet we don't have a it's been a while now it, it is but it the way that it happens in uh administrative law here at least with aka is you don't actually have a closing argument you don't have there is no you know it's always to the alj there's never a jury okay so um it's you an opening statement trial. though oh, you, you can do that okay you can do that but i mean you have to do such extensive writing before you get there it's i mean it, it's not really necessary because you've had to write everything out to explain to the judge what's happening before you get there see but like my my uh like my personality be like no i'm fucking doing this i'm, I'm standing up and i'm doing this like we're having a we're having it's judge i understand you you know what's going on but like just give me five minutes please like, i have to I have to like i have to do something more than just like question witnesses right <laughs> that is pretty much also but via zoom too which is weird you have to like stay, i guess stay seated and like oh that, it was it was really i mean I like to walk around experience as far as like oh yeah no, there was none of that and that way it was kind of hard it was nice to be able to have everything in front of me especially if i'm looking around that everybody doesn't have to see all the junk i have around <laughs> uh but um but it was kind of tough to get through all of the like the questions and stuff it was nice to be able to do that but the way that so after it all ends, there's no, you know, summation or anything like that. It's all in writing. So yeah. you have like, you have about 40 pages to submit your proposed recommended order to the judge. And then uh, he decides, the judge decides who he's going to go with. And he submits that recommended order back to the agency, back to the secretary of ACA. Okay. And saying, I think that this should happen. I know that you're trying to impose all these fines, maybe revoke the license. But I think, based on the evidence at trial, 
it's the I say uh, I agree or I disagree or whatever it is, and I will I'm turning this back over. This is my recommendation, and then the agency can either do it or not. So they can either continue with what we were doing, or we can do. Let's say the judge says, I don't think you should take the license away. I don't think you should shut it down. You know, uh, then we need to go with what he says unless we have a really good reason. Everything that gets appealed from us, like there's no, there's nobody to ask after us except for the district courts of appeal in Florida. So after the secretary signs the final order, that's who they go to. Hmm. And they do show quite a bit of deference to the uh, ALJs. Huh. They do get quite, I mean, they get... Maybe not quite as much as circuit judges, but I mean they do get quite a bit. Um, but as far as like the the hearing though, I mean, or the trial, it was definitely quite an experience. Especially because some of the rules, it was everybody's first time. It was the judge's first time too. It was everybody's right. first time doing this. Yeah. And so you're the first person I've heard of that's done a Zoom trial. Right, and it was all quite quite out of order. I mean, like you you know. The way that you think of like being able to present your witnesses to make the story flow and stuff presentation like of evidence too, just like in general, like pictures and, and documents and videos. And just... Right, it was a concern for us leading up to it because I mean, as a state agency, we don't have the most uh, advanced technology. You don't say. So we have, I mean, so we're you know behind the eight ball on a lot of that. So it's. I mean, we, it's just uh, sitting at a desktop. I got a camera sitting on top. I had to plug into the computer and, I'm, and I'm, we're trying to work it from there. But in order to make things go faster, it's, uh, the judge is saying, you know, like if you have, um, you know, witnesses on both of your lists, let's call them first and get it out of the way. We'll wing it as far as when it comes to cross and redirect and, and what that actually means and your limitations as far as how you're supposed to ask questions. And you're like, you know what, we're moving forward. Let's do it. You know, like, Let's just get into it. And so it was kind of all out of order. Uh, you know, like we're trying to get the people that are not agency or employees in there, like firefighters or, uh, you know, former employees and things like that. And that, like I said, we don't, we do have the authority to subpoena, but not necessarily the authority to force them to comply. Yeah. So, so did you have a lot of like stops in like where it would be like up oh, up oh, were you saying and, oh, and then there were like, so many i mean it, he told us to like if you had an objection raise your hand you could start saying something but okay. put your hand up and so but that actually was probably not one of the most confusing things that actually worked pretty well because if you just throw it out there objection you know like the judge will stop things and you know what let's iron it out uh, and all that a so was there like i i guess because it's an administrative hearing you don't I had never thought of this before, actually. So with jury trials, right, if there are objections, right, you're not supposed to make a standing objection. You're supposed to stand up and object. Now, most of the time, people are pretty cool about it, but it, it's we, – we, I've done it. We've all done it. Where we'll stand up and be like, objection, this is irrelevant, blah, 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 right, right in front of the jury, right? But typically, what you're supposed to do is you're just supposed to stand up and say, objection. And then judge will say like grounds and you'll say relevance and then the judge will make a ruling right there. But a lot of times opposing counsel will be like approach and then we approach, right? And the judge turns on the white noise so the jury can't hear us talking because we always talk about things that could – yeah, right, yeah, could prejudice the jury, right? And hence the reason there's an objection. But a lot of times we'll break into things that like would obviously never be in front of a jury. So how do you handle that via Zoom? 
can you mute everybody? Like, you know, like, let's say, cause you've got like, you've got seven jurors or, or eight jurors or whatever you might have. Can you mute all them? So the, the four of us or the, the eight of us, the eight of us, but like, you know, like the, the, the attorneys and the, and, and the plaintiff and the defendant can hear what's going on. And even, even when we approach on normally the plaintiffs and defendants can't hear what we're saying. We're up the, you know, up the front, just like doing, you know, just legal, legal speak, you know? Right. So they, they're, I mean, they're, I really can't imagine all of the time that it would take for them to do that. So, of course, we didn't have this issue because we didn't have a jury, but you do have a waiting room. So uh, initially, and the judge really worked with us when it came to this, like as far as not having everybody sit on their phone or sit on their computer in the waiting room. So the judge was the moderator. He was the one allowed, you know, bringing people in, setting them out. So he had the active room, which is where we were, the judge, the reporter, witnesses, uh, representatives. And then he had a separate waiting room. He could see everybody in there. They could not participate here, see anything that was actually happening in the main room. So I'm assuming that's that's how they would address that. I know in a few counties in Florida, if it, is this one? I'm not sure if the Sixth Circuit is one that they started doing, going back to trials, doing the Zoom and. The I don't Zoom think I, I I don't think we are. I think it's yeah. I want to say it's Orlando and I think maybe one of the counties in Miami. Okay. There might have prior date, whatever you know. It's um, going to be interesting. I mean, to see yep. that happen. To see, I mean, like this, because like, like I said, it was quite an experience just to get the witnesses. You know, like everybody sitting at home. You know, to be, you know, you think of like having to direct and cross and redirect for, I don't know, eight hours or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's, it's definitely quite an experience to have them do that, to have the jurors sit there for a week and watch things like that. I mean, I imagine it would be a much more difficult. And even in the trials, like, you know, in, in your line of work now, yeah, I imagine it would be much easier to have them listen to a doctor talk about stuff in the jury box as opposed to sitting home on the couch. Yeah, especially when they're going to have like distractions and stuff around them. You know, like, you know what's going to happen is like, we're going to get into like day two and we're going to like, you know, the jurors are going to show up and one's going to have like a breakfast burrito in their hand or something like that, which there's nothing really wrong with that, but it's, 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 it's a distraction. You know, it, it, it's, you know, while I guess the positives would be you're more comfortable, right? You're more, you, maybe you're more receptive because you're in your home and you can relax or in your study or you're in whatever your workroom is, maybe it's your living room, whatever it might be. You know, so you're more relaxed in that regard, but at the same time, you're way more distracted because, you know, when they're going on break or they're going on, you know, I guess just break is probably a fine word for it. You know, they have all the comforts of home they can access, you know, normally what happens is deputies confiscate your cell phones and they walk in, you know, they're going to have their computers. They're going to need their computers to do a Zoom meeting, which to me, this is why I think that if I was the one that was running jury trials, if I was a judge that could really like weigh in on how all of that would go, jurors for Zoom trials would still need to show up to the courthouse and they would be put in their own room or they would be put into a jury box or maybe into the gallery, like pick a gallery and just separate everybody and just do it that way and put like a camera on the jurors in that regard. I think maybe putting them in their own rooms would be better because you could put a camera closer to their face because I want to be able to see their face, see their reactions. Because if you had like one camera like just blasting on like the gallery, you're not going to be able to really see anything. But I think that's the way you're going to have to do it because I think there's just going to be too many distractions. It's going to be too easy to do your own research when, when the camera's not on you. Uh, and you don't get that like the, the gravitas of the situation because you're not in court. You don't have the judge talking to you. You don't have the deputies escorting you places. And I don't know if you know this, but when jurors come in 
when you get your your summons to come to do jury duty, right? You're put into a pool and you can go criminal, civil, family, whatever. You're in all in a pool and they, they do like some basic um, questions and answers to kind of like just get like some, some biographical data on you, so that we, which we get at, you know, up in the, up in the, uh, up in the courtrooms before they even come up. Um, but there's also, there's always a judge that goes down and gives them like the spiel is what I just call it. And obviously every judge does it differently. And I frankly, I've never even heard it, but I know that they give it to them. And because <laughs> the judges talk about it, some judges are better at it than others. But the idea behind those speeches are, I'm a judge, you're the jurors. We're here for you. You're here for us. You're here for the people who have these issues. This is America. You know, it's like very like rah, rah, patriotic. And like, I would love to see one. Like, I, it sounds awesome, you know? But like there was a guy, um, there was a, he's not a judge anymore. He's a former judge in Brevard County. His name was Judge Mashid. And he was an Indian who grew up in like Northern South America. I can't think of uh, one of the Guianas, I think. And he ended up emigrating here. And like, that's all I know about his story. I don't know anything else outside of that, but he ended up becoming a attorney and then a judge and a very well-respected judge. But his speeches were like well-renowned in the courthouse because he was the guy that would like turn the people that would come in that were like, man, I don't want to miss work for freaking jury duty. And then he would be like, he would get in there and talk to them. And they'd be like, listen, I understand work is important to me, but like, I'm here to do my job. You know, he'd be that guy that could do that. Like, and I, I saw him, like I saw the results of that, the fruits of his labor. Like they'd come in and they would like, we ask them those questions, right? Well, you'd rather be like, you, your mind would be on work, right? And they would literally say stuff like that. They would say stuff like, you know, when I originally got here today, I thought that that's what would happen. But no, look, this is important. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna give it my all. I'm like, no, if, if you pick me, like, I will be here. I, I'd rather, I need to go work. But if you pick me, I'm here and I'll do my job. And it was just like, what? Judge Majeed, thumbs up, man. Like, great stuff. Yeah. But yeah, you know, like, um, Zoom trials are... It's inevitable, I think. I, I think I'm, I'm going to have to figure it out. I mean, as far as that stuff you were talking about, about the um, jurors, I mean, Texas had that, I'm not thinking, like one of the first cases it did. The jurors just, one of the jurors just gets up, walks away from the camera. I think you could hear the toilet flushing. And, <laughs> you know, and, and even, I mean, there's just a temptation of it whenever you don't have to be there looking at like your idea of like having been in the, in the courthouse, like in a room and somewhere where you're actually forced to pay attention. I don't know if you heard about that, but I can't think of the case now, but um, in a recent oral argument over the phone in the United States Supreme Court, Justice Breyer did that. Went to the bathroom? Yeah, he did. A U.S. Supreme Court there. justice? Really? <laughs> no, I didn't hear about that. It's amazing. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, you can hear it. I mean, wow. it's over the phone, obviously, so you don't know if he walked away or if that was somebody else. But that's what, you know, like the, the, the commentary is that, you know, maybe even. It, it, so I'm not sure that how much you would be able to expect them to sit there. Like I said, if you're it, sitting it, at home on your couch for all day long listening to this trial, yeah. you know, especially if it's complicated and it's not juicy or anything. Like right. That. Which a lot of times it's not. <laughs> <laughs> But like, but like, like, think about that, right? If Justice Breyer can't do it, how is John Smith going to do it? You know what I mean? And, and like, I'm not talking to man about Justice Breyer, obviously Supreme Court justice, you know. But like, it is, it's telling, it's telling. It's gonna, it's gonna be, 
Not everything we say is important. <laughs> as hard as that is for me to admit, not everything we say is important. So, you know, um, there, and there's only so much, like, so much attention that somebody can pay to, to what we have to say. And, you know, like, we have these cases for so long sometimes, too. And you just, like, you finally get that moment where you're like, all right. And I love that moment. You know, you finally get to, like, put it all out there. And, you know, you get like day two for me, it's usually day two. Like they're usually into it for the first like 30 minutes to an hour. And then the rest of the day, they're like, they're just, they, they're zonked out. They just, you know, you know. I mean, honestly, I couldn't imagine. I don't know about having to do this in a, to a jury or anything like that. I haven't had to do it before. Uh, only other practice outside of working. So before the agency, I was at a, a, a transportation logistics firm. And, um, so we were the representatives of uh, motor carriers, mostly, and also their insurance companies. So we did a lot of that. But our main focus was to resolve the dispute before litigation. That is what we were really there for. I mean, we were on the cutting edge of everything that was happening. We could see the issues coming ahead, ahead of time, mainly because the guy that ran the firm, uh, the partner in charge, um, Jay Taylor, uh, brilliant guy. I mean, uh, everybody is usually coming to him, asking him to, I mean, they're coming to him from all over the country, asking him different things. He's written like independent contractor statutes uh, in multiple states and stuff like that. Um, but most of these things, like I said, we were drag out for a long time for litigation because we're trying to get the insurance company involved. We want to get you know the, the plaintiff and the defendant, everybody in here in the same room where we want to talk it out. We want to figure everything out about what the law is, what the law does say what it doesn't say, uh, you know, and so by the time, I mean, I was there for a year, I started cases as soon as I walked in, I mean, we were nowhere near trial when I left. I mean, like, it, I mean, they were definitely be dragging on for a long, long time. So uh, last I heard, I think that they were getting ready to take one of the trial that we had started right after I started. So that's very recently, I've been going for a year. So that's two years pre-trial they've had the case. So. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how long these cases take. Like, I have a case right now, which is crazy, actually. Um, okay, so I have, and they're actually coming in here tomorrow for a meeting, but I have a case where my client was rocking, walking across a crosswalk up in um, up in Clearwater. I don't know if I told you about this one, but it's right where Gulf to Bay and US-19 meet. And the crosswalks going from the south side of the road on both east and west sides of the intersection so both crosswalks from south to north malfunction, and they're not from here, right? And so they were stuck on the south side of US 19 trying to get to the north side so they can go back to their hotel room for 30 minutes ping-ponging back and forth between both. And then a couple of Americans, it's a, very, it's a really heavily trafficked uh, pedestrian area. I've actually been there, like walked around, and there was a ton of people there. Um, so they tried to go with the Americans and, and my client who was, I think 15 at the time, timed it wrong and just walked down and got popped by a guy going by like 50 That's miles an hour. Really busy yeah. And like his, his sister was there who was like 26 at the time and her, she was married and his, her husband was there also. He saw it come and grabbed her and pulled her back and she still got like glass in her eye, like from the, from the whole thing. It was, it's, it's a crazy case. So, but it's weird because because they're from South Africa. They had traveler's insurance policy that they got when they were in South Africa. So there's a South African litigation firm that's also involved. I had a Zoom meeting with him yesterday. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was crazy. Super nice guy. Yeah, we talked about COVID and politics for like the first like 10, 15 minutes that we talked. Yeah, super interesting guy. Like one of the weird, like one of the cooler uh, experiences I've had in the last like I don't know, like six months to a year. Like it's been a this career is nuts, man. I'm telling you, like I would never have guessed, like oh hey, you know, like when Chris, when you go to law school, you're gonna have a case that involves like also a South African law firm as well. Like I never would have, I would have been like bullshit. That's not gonna happen. But like, yeah, you know, like it's, you know, so now I'm dealing with that. Like, I don't remember why I brought this up, but you know, I, I guess more zoom stuff, you know, it was just, um, he's going to be on, like, I was actually, before you came in here, like, um, you know, for those of you that are listening, we're in a, we're in the conference room right now and there's a big TV up on the wall. Like I was playing around with it cause we just installed that TV up on the wall there. So I was playing around with it cause he's going to be on the zoom meeting tomorrow when they all come in here. And it's like trying to like marry all of this together because he has a separate cause of action that's related to the same subject incident, right? But it's in a different legal system than ours. So like I'm handling the personal injury stuff and he's going to handle the, basically the insurance dispute because from what he was telling me, the issue that they had with not giving them the full amount of the money was that he had mental health issues. And it's like, he doesn't have mental health issues. He got hit by a car and now his brain is, well, I'm not going to say it like that, but like he, he got hit by a car and now he has a traumatic brain injury and he doesn't, his cognitive processes have been affected and it probably will never go back to the same. You know, it's, it's a terrible, it's a terrible case, but um, it's just a weird, it's a weird world that we live in where, you know, how, like I yeah I don't even like I'm just uh, I'm I'm like scratching the surface of this thing right now I'm still trying to figure out like well like what's my role in all of, like the South Africa stuff like what's his role in the in the America stuff you know? know but that's still that's still awesome that's great to be able to to see how all of it works together that's probably one of the things that keeps me the most interested in the legal field I think just because there's so much you don't know yeah I mean you can learn it and learn it and learn it every day. And there is so much more to learn if you want to. I mean, it's out there. Yep. I mean, there's so much, which is um, I've really enjoyed doing over my time. And I've, I've only been barred since 2016. Uh, so I'm going on right close to four years. Um, spent the first uh, over two years at the uh, Court of Appeals in Florida. I was a clerk for uh, Scott Meehart, who was previously the Solicitor General of Florida. Yeah. And um, and in his chambers, I was trained by Renata Francis. I don't know if you've heard that name. Hmm. She has been, she was appointed uh, maybe a month or so ago by Governor DeSantis as the seventh justice of the Florida Supreme Court. Okay. All right. Um, I, I should know that. She, her and, um, oh my goodness. I can't remember his name now. Another um, private attorney out of South Florida, Miami, out of the third district. She was a uh, so she was the career attorney, the law clerk for Judge Bankar. Um, I started there as an intern, and uh, she was training me then. And then after I graduated law school, he asked me to to join him as uh, the clerk. So I worked up under them, and uh, had some. That was tremendous learning experience and that's that's one of those places where you're sitting and learning all the time researching yeah. all the time writing all the time great cases and actually some i probably wanted to ask you about i don't know um uh, sandbagging 
Okay. Is, is that a term? Is yeah. That a term that, yeah. So that, that's I'm assuming that's something that the state would bring up most of the time against the defenders. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Right. So one of the one of the biggest cases that stood out to me, and it dragged on for a long time, and and, and I didn't even work on this personally, but we all kept track of all the big cases. You know, everybody's keeping track of. You go back and forth with everybody else. Um, but when you say everybody else, you mean like all the other different uh, appellate courts? All of the not the courts, but the clerks. The, okay. The first district in Florida has the biggest court, I think. That's there's 15 judges. Um, but they also do a lot of administrative stuff. So anytime you sue an administrator, or you sue the state of Florida or something like that, it goes to Tallahassee, which means that the first DCA is the one that gets it. Okay. There's five districts in Florida. Um, and so they, they cover everything between uh, Pensacola, Jacksonville, down to Gainesville. Okay. That's their uh, area. So, um, but one of the, quite a few interesting cases come out of there. But uh, a lot of the ones, that, one of the ones that stood out to me the most was, I think that was Knight. Uh, night versus state, and it was um, actually jury parts. Um, did you ever run across any issues like that? Oh, how about um, what was it? The issue was the lesser included offense. And okay, all right, all right. Did that ever come up? You okay, so that's more of a felony thing, but I, I'm I'm familiar with the terms. Right, so they would have, um, it was what they called so you. Whenever the, the state would charge them, they would have to say charge for murder one yep. or something like that. Then you'd have to include in the jury instructions the lesser included, included offenses. Offense. Right, yeah. And the theory behind that was jury parts. The theory behind that is if the jury doesn't buy that most serious offense of murder one, right. then I'm just going to say it's murder two. Like right. Maybe, but that was the idea behind requiring the state to say, you have to put in the lesser included offense. Otherwise, hmm. it's fundamental error, which means even if the defense attorney does not bring it up during trial, it's it fundamentally flaws the whole proceeding, and you have to do it all over again. Interesting. What happened in Knight versus State was the court decided uh, that it was a public defender, uh, that the public defender waived fundamental error review. So, okay. in a way, the court decided, they implicitly decided that the public defender did not raise the objection intentionally. Okay. Because they thought that their client would get a new trial on appeal. Interesting. Right. Okay. It was really interesting. Okay. Because, and, and it worked out. And this case went on for a long time. It ended up going to the Supreme Court and back down. And uh, the reason it took so long is because uh, recently in the last a couple of years, and I don't remember the case name now, but the Florida Supreme Court uh, did away with jury parts in Florida. So no okay. jury parts. Um, so that so means that the state can charge only what it wants to charge without having to worry about all the lesser includes as well? You don't have to add that anymore. It's no more... I think that's probably a good, a, a good thing. I, I, th I think so too. Like Especially like maybe holding the state accountable to say, you know, if this is what you want to charge, then charge them with that. Right. You know, not, don't give them five more things to pick from. You know, but it so, do, it doesn't. It also doesn't preclude them from choosing other the lesser includes right, as right. well. So, like, if the state of Florida wants to go for murder one, but also murder two, but then also maybe manslaughter, they can go for all three of those. But they get to choose what they want to go for depending on what the facts lay out. Because then the defender as well, because I obviously I have more of a defense mindset from like the criminal game. Then you can choose depending on you can. I mean, frankly. 
with the old system, you would have to defend it no matter what, right? You have to defend, I guess, everything that would come after that. But it's the same deal, right? You can say, listen, jury, and this is a thing. Listen, jury, it's not murder one, it's murder two. That might be what your whole th your whole crux of your argument might be like. We agree, it's two, it's not one, and this is why it's not one. That could be the, that could literally be the entire two week trial, you know, where you're saying my client's guilty but not of this. That's a totally legitimate defense, and I think that the state or I guess the Supreme Court's decision, not having read it, but you know, you know, obviously I, I feel like I understand it. Although the one the 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 point about Waving, I'm not an appellate lawyer, so you're not waving, waving here. So, so uh, like implicitly the, waving the the review, error review, fundamental error review. Like that's something like <laughs> if they if I if I did something like that and the and the court ruled that, I'd be like, mm -mm, did not do that on purpose. <laughs> had no idea. Well, so that's where there was a lot of dispute. That's where there was a lot of back and forth because what we're trying to say that this was a public defender. We don't know. I, I think you probably looked at. I say public defender. I mean assistant public defender. Yeah. Um, who had yeah, not been that long. You. And uh, you know, so we. So Did he really know? Comfortable with saying, well, this guy. Right. This APD was had everything. To do. Like, he tricked the <laughs> yeah. judge. He tricked right. the prosecutor. He tricked yeah. everybody into right. doing it. Everybody was a comfortable saying it, you know. Like yeah. we're, if we're going to assume that, for example, you as the defender have these negative motives, uh, you know, reasons that you don't want to bring up these issues, right, that might get you a trial later. Then yeah, maybe we should also hold that against the jury. I mean, I mean, and, and, right, true, but also, and don't get me wrong, like if I was able to find a loophole like that, I would totally use it. You know, like it's as long as I didn't think it was as long as I didn't think it was unethical. If it wasn't illegal. Right. And I didn't find it immoral or unethical, then I would absolutely 100% do it. But that's a very nuanced. Just you explaining it to me, I was kind of like, okay, all right, let me see if I. I think I, I think I understand it. But like, as a, especially as an APD, when you have as many cases as you have, you know, I, I'm not sure. Like, I, you know, and, and I don't know who this person was or or what was going on, and and, and you know, so I'm not I'm not passing judgment on this person because I I don't know anything about that person. But I know if it was me, uh, obviously, if I knew that that was a possibility, sure, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't take it. But, you know, just from the way you explained it to me, I'm just like, uh. And I know that when I was a county court, when I was doing misdemeanor stuff, it definitely was more like I never played for the appeal ever, ever. I played for the win, like, right then and there. And, like, I only had one appeal. I wrote one appeal, and I argued the appeal, and I fucking lost the appeal hardcore <laughs> but like you know like it was one of the what do they call it? see i don't even know what the term is like what when they like when the county or the circuit court judges like they don't even they don't even rule like a, they rule but without an opinion right so they call that uh, it's a pca that's so it they pca per, me procurium just means like opinion of the court uh, procurium affirmed or procurium denied or dismissed pca pcp something yep like that. yep that's the way most of the appellate decisions get decided because they're just saying, even if they disagree with how the original judge got there, they're just saying, you got the right result. There's no reason for me to explain this. So let me let me just let me just not save us all the time, the energy. Okay. Yeah. So right. this is not going to be precedent. You can't use this for anything. But just move on. You lost. You lost, and you won. Everything stays the same. For the record, because we're on the record, it was not my case. Uh, there was a there was an APD who was let go and he had an appeal that was pending, and so I got it got dropped on my 
on my desk. So I ended up arguing it, but not writing it. But the funny thing was, is when I left the, the public defender's office, I had written an appeal that I did not get to argue. And it had to do with noise violations. It was a constitutional thing, which. Well, I mean, in this, well, see, actually across the state of Florida, it actually is done a lot differently. So in the first district, just if you ask for an oral argument, you are, you're not likely to get it. I mean, like we, they grant very few. Uh, so there's just not that much reason for them unless they just really think it might be necessary. Um, the very confusing cases, like, for example, like tobacco cases, mm-hmm. uh, trials are two and three and weeks long. And so many tens of thousands of pages of records. So maybe you want somebody to step in some kind of, you know, DC attorney to, you know, to come in and let's, let's work this out a little bit. But, um, but for the most part, especially in criminal trials, uh, there were not that many oral arguments. I mean, everything was getting done on paper. I mean, almost everything would be done on paper. There was not much reason for them to say, but, but in other districts, as far as I know, like the second district, if you ask for it, you get it. So if you want to go argue in front of them, you can. I mean, I think you probably should have a lot of good stuff to say if you want to go, but yeah. uh, otherwise put it in writing. But, um, but no, I mean, like it was a, I mean, it was definitely a really great experience. There's a lot of issues like that uh, would come up. I mean, if I, could, I think of a, another one, one of my favorites coming out of there was uh, Rand versus State out of Jacksonville. Probable cause. Uh, they, uh, security officer, I'm not sure, it was a, it was a JSO, uh, but it was like a, I don't know, some kind of private security officer having the authority to arrest somebody on school properties. Okay. Uh, a gentleman out there running on the school track, high school track at 3 a.m. Okay. Jogging around the track. Said he usually worked night shift, but, uh, he was off that night. But he was just keeping his regular cycle. But he was jogging around the track waiting for his fiance to get off at like 6 a.m., something like that. He got arrested for that? He was on school property. So the that's not the reason. That's the reason that he was stopped. That why the officer walked in, told him to come over there. Okay. Okay. All right. They arrested him for that. Then after they arrested him, they found uh, a pistol in his pocket. He's a convicted felon? Convicted felon. All right. So felon in possession, and that's the charge. But <laughs> the idea is, like, what what was the reason? Did you have probable cause to arrest him to begin with? Right. Well, the the court was split. I mean, you had. It, Are there ordinances the for that kind of thing? Uh, no, it was just because I've done that. You know, like gone out to like the like like a like a public school like right. track and like use the facilities because I'm a taxpayer. Right. It was you well know? settled, but I mean, nobody disagreed that he was not breaking the law. Okay. Okay. So he's just a was, dude out there at 3 a.m. in the morning running around the track? Which I get it. It's kind of weird, but like, it's not like he's like, you know, doing furtive motions on the street corner with like two other guys that are smoking cigarettes. Like, he's just like, out running on a track. Like, well, the, was the he running in like was, like a full like hoodie and like sweatpants or something? Or is it like normal running clothes? Like, what's he going to have on it? Right. The issue, the problem was the office, it was not a violation, but the officer thought it was. And they had, the way that the court was splitting was that they had probable cause to think 
that he committed the offense, he committed good, the offense that the officer thought was an actual offense. So a good faith mistake on the part of the officer. Right. Man, that stuff, dude. <laughs> I hate that crap. So there was a. All right. So there was a. Have you heard? Of, have you heard? I think it's Hine versus North Carolina. Hine. It came that out. Very it's a. It's a Supreme Court case yes. that probably got referenced in this case. The, the, it, it came out like white. Right right yes, exactly. That's yes. the. That's the one. Yes. Right. 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 So that came out like literally like the month that I started the APD's office. And the distinction, I actually was the, I, I got lucky to argue that case for the first time for the judge for Elim and Titusville, who was the best judge to start in front of, just the nicest guy, great mentor judge, like good learning judge, right? Like understood that like we're fresh out of law school and like he would let me go on and on and on and on. He, like, <laughs> he knew how he was going to rule like within 30 seconds of me speaking. Great guy, love him to death. Um... But I got to argue Hine in front of him for the first time, actually. And I don't remember what the facts of the case were in that motion because it was a motion to suppress um, based on – it was a, I'm sure it was a traffic stop of some kind. But that was, the distinction that I made in Hine was that in Hine, the issue was there were conflicting laws. And so the officer knew, theoretically, that there were two conflicting laws and he had to choose which one to enforce and he was enforcing – blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. And so in Hine, they determined that if there were laws that were in conflict, the officer's good faith assumption was then allowed to then make the stop. So I argued there had to be a conflict in the law, and the judge agreed with me. He was like, there was no there was no argument. You can't just say that all, all are, that, that anytime a police officer has a good faith belief that the law is being violated, therefore he has probable cause in order to make a stop or reasonable suspicion to conduct a search, you have to have actual reasonable suspicion, actual probable cause, objectively, not a good faith assumption. So, you know, and I don't know how the law has progressed since then, but like, this sounds like, it sounds like BS to me. So what are they, how do they rule it? I'm sorry, how do they rule? Well, I mean, that, that was quite an interesting case because it went on for so long that the makeup of the panel uh, kept changing and stuff like that, but it ended up uh, being a 2-1 um, decision, I believe, saying that um, no, you have to have probable cause. The officer has to have probable cause, like you're saying, of an offense that actually exists. Objectively. Not something that you think is an offense, but that is not. You know, in high, like you're saying, you have the uh, contradicting laws that say, you know, both. So if you're relying on one, maybe you made a mistake, but you had probable cause to believe one of those were violated. But in this case, like I said, there's no, there's nothing anywhere that says the guy was doing anything wrong. It's just that the officer thought it was, you should not have been out there in the middle of the night running, and so they arrested the person for that. It was a mistaken violation. Was it uh, night, night versus state? Night. Okay, That's kind of probably. Night versus state. Curious. Yeah. And it goes on quite a while. No, well, no, no. That's rant. The, oh, rant. Okay. Night. That's the. Uh, um, fundamental error review sandbagging case and then uh those are the two of the ones that really stuck out to me when i was working there and then one oh of the, yeah one of the last ones and i don't remember the name of this one but it was a, it was it was very entertaining uh it was also out of jacksonville um it was a violation of probation case okay and i feel like in uh county court we probably did Oh yeah, we definitely yeah, do VOPs. Yeah, we, we just call them VOPs. Yeah, yeah. It was always a tough thing too because VOPs like once you're arrested on a VOP, you aren't released until you work out something. 
So there's usually like your ability to like bond them out was tough. And the reason that's important is because everyone just wants to get out of jail. So like, right. you know, even if there's no merit to the VOP itself, or you have a really good argument against the VOP, if they've been in jail for a week and they're going to stay in jail for another week and it's going to take you three more weeks to get the, the motion heard or whatever to get a trial on the VOP, they're just going to plead out to it, you know? Well, in this particular case, and it was, like I said, it was quite entertaining. It was uh, a gentleman had gotten arrested for possession. Okay. Some kind of narcotics. Came before the judge. Told the judge, um, you know, I have work lined up. You know, I've, I've got an interview. I've already interviewed at Lowe's, and they're going to hire me to do this work. And um, I'm going to have a job and, you know, please don't, you know, don't make me, you know, go to jail. I'm going to lose all this stuff. So just at least let me just stay out. The judge said, okay, well, you have um, so many days. We're going to come back and we're going to revisit this and, you know, see where you are with that. Seems reasonable. The guy comes back to the next scheduled hearing, has to tell the judge I don't have a Lowe's job. I got a Home Depot job. Okay. Full time. Also got a part-time job, 20 hours a week at McDonald's. Okay. The judge says, you did not do what you told me you were going to do. Because it's not Lowe's. It's unreasonable. <laughs> Revokes it, of course, throws wow. it out. And, and that ended up being, uh, you know, pretty contentious on the court, too, because we're trying to say, like, what in the world are we doing here? Yeah. You know, like how, what, what do we want people to do? The person literally went out and got two jobs because right. he couldn't get the original. Was it, was it confirmed that he actually had the jobs? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Man, there was yeah, no between the only, uh, what was it? The uh, probation officer that shows up. Yeah. Uh, there was no, the, the only thing that they were saying was. Lowe's were so Yeah. He did not get the Lowe's job. Jeez. Because Lowe's would not hire somebody who had been arrested for uh, possession of narcotics. Yeah. But so, but like the, the point that that judge is making was, you lied to me, and it's like, Potential, come yeah. on, man, like, you, like, I've been there, I, I, I've fed the meat grinder. That's what I called it. Like, that's why I left the public defender's office because it's feeding the meat grinder. To me, it was feeding the meat grinder. So I can understand getting jaded for sure. But he's judge, you know, or, or she's judge. <laughs> like, you, you gotta like, you know, take a step back there, you know. And we get lied to all the time. The judges get lied to all the time, and it gets old. Right. And that's what it was. It was like, uh, because I'm, I'm this this particular judge without like, you know, saying anything's actually made a, um, a television show, and that Geo did a television show, I think about. Geo. I want to know who this person is when we get done when we get done recording. <laughs> I I want to see this show now for sure. <laughs> um, but I mean, so there was there were quite. a few entertaining cases and I think one of the last ones um, civil case actually religion clause uh, okay. establishment clause probably right. one of the most interesting things I did it was one of my first cases too it was great uh, parishioner of the Catholic Church okay. uh, sues the school because their children so have seven or eight children it's crap uh, the youngest child, at some point, they believe they changed their beliefs in saying, I, I don't want vaccination. Now, okay. I think that the Catholic Church at some point in the past, I think, probably had some kind of instruction on that, like not receiving some. That I know the Catholic Church was like anti-vax or, or well, maybe like mediocre. Not so much now. There were specific ones like that, like 
fetal cells and stuff like that. Uh, okay, that makes sense. With abortion, right, so, gotcha, gotcha. So, all right. Like, uh, but this was, it's all a lot more nuanced now, a lot more changed, and the more that we can get away from using those kinds of things to new kinds of vaccination, something has changed a lot. But that was the problem. These particular prisoners wanted their children to go to the Catholic school. Um, and they did not want their children vaccinated. All of the older children were vaccinated, but like I said, they had changed their minds of saying, from here down, I don't want these children vaccinated. And the school said, you know, sorry, as, as a church, you know, as a, you know, instruction from wherever we get our instructions from the archdiocese, uh, you have to, you're required to do that. Well, uh, Florida law says that if you participate in this uh, particular tax program that the state offers, which the school did, then you have to uh, allow the students, uh, the parents of the students to submit like written documentation to say that vaccination, uh, it violates my religious beliefs. So I do not want my children to have vaccination. Okay. So if you go to a public school, then that's how it works, or even a private non-religious school. This happened to be, like I said, the parishioner of the church suing the Catholic church because I don't know. I didn't have any good descriptions for that. Whenever I, my judge was coming up with much better ones than I did, but it sounded like they always do, right? <laughs> Seriously, was uh, was uh, you know like how are you? I don't I don't want to understand how you can tell like the pope that you're wrong. Like I thought that he <laughs> he decided everything. You know, like I thought that started at the top and yeah. it goes down. But yeah, uh, apparently there's a lot of you know that you know of course everybody's got their own thinking and, and stuff like that. So they disagreed and they sued. And said, uh, no, I want my child to go to school here. The statute said, you participate in this program, and you have to allow me to submit based on my religious beliefs. Well, um, there was a lot of back and forth about that one, but then they called it the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine, which meant that when people get in fights inside of a religious organization, okay, that the government cannot get involved. Interesting. Huh. Right. So, okay. Think of like even like your yeah I, I grew up that makes sense uh, you know but like think of like in, in in my setting I think of like the choir director suing the pastor yeah like that. right because they got fired because I don't know they did too much sinning or something <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah then the court has to get involved and in order to fix that we have to look at things that are not law like you look at like Catholic like, law right what's like, Baptist law right yeah how much sinning is too much sinning <laughs> right which <laughs> sins are worse than the others right can you imagine right. like and almost then, created theocracy in some ways exactly interesting that, and that is super interesting the reason for it is just to say you know what huh. we're not getting involved and in fact the United States Supreme Court just this uh, just within the last few weeks came out with a, a very very big case um, Sisters of the Poor, uh, there's a name before it, but essentially it was teachers of a religious organization that were suing for different reasons, non-religious reasons, uh, sex discrimination, gender, you know, things like that, mm. that were suing the entity, but they did not, they were not ministers, uh, preachers, and uh, you know, or anything like that, mm. priests. They work, but they did work for the religious entity. So they okay. did work at the Catholic school. Okay. And um, and the United States Supreme Court decided it also applied there. 
So hmm. they, even though what you're bringing up in a secular setting might work, like if you're at a public school and you're saying they're discriminated against because of your sex or race or something like that, in the religious setting, it's just not going to fly. Interesting. Because we can't get involved to fix that because at some point, I guess the, the logic was, at some point we have to start talking about religion and that just shouldn't have any place in the court of law or anything like that. So. Which, I mean, in some, on some level, definitely, I, I get that. You know, like, I, I think drilling down into the details, it's like, I guess the question is, if your religion allows you or require, I say, I was, requires you to discriminate, do we allow that? It's a big right. question. I mean, they're right, they're right on the cusp of, of uh, addressing those issues. I mean, the uh, United States Supreme Court did that in the the, uh, the the wedding cake. Right. Right. I mean, they, yeah. they, they split the baby on that one. They didn't really answer the question. They did not. I, I don't think they did. Yeah. <laughs> they did not. And that was, I think that, that was very intentional. I think it was so, too. Like, yep. I'm trying to work this out because, you know, we're having a tough time answering these questions. Uh, so try not to... You know, do you do what you have to do not to bring those things back and, here? Like, and I'm not a Supreme Court justice, but like, it's not their job, you know. Like, <laughs> like I understand they're pretty heavy decisions, but like, you kind of signed up for it, you know. Like, well, that's like, true, but there like, are some decisions that are really tough like, for them to make. Like, whenever it comes to deciding them, like especially when you think of the more conservative ones, saying uh, what makes them more conservative is that they choose not to answer those. Thinking like Justice Thomas, who's really far. Right. Yeah. All the way on the edge, so far off that he would overturn like a hundred years of college law doctrine. Right. He's like, I don't. I think we did it wrong a hundred years. I'm like, well, we're a hundred <laughs> years into this. Let's figure it out. Do it <laughs> yeah. But there are a lot of things that you you know that they think that it's just we don't have a better way to do this than than Chris or Mike do. Like, uh, there's no uh, Justice Scalia. So he would joke about that in his presentation. I love Scalia. He's like one of my favorite of all time. I love Scalia. I love his writing style. Uh, even I agree with him a lot, and then oh, I disagree with him some too. But I love his writing. Yep, yep. he had a wonderful writing style, also sarcastic, yes, yeah. and, and dissent and things like that. But I mean, his thing was like, you know, some of those questions you're asking us to resolve are like, you know, sitting around the table, like, you know, do you think it's reasonable? Do you think it, you know, like, hands up? Does anybody think it's unreasonable? You know, whatever. Like, yep. we're not in any better place to solve this than. Yeah, then but they're the they, ones, they're the chosen ones, you know, like, that's the thing, you know, I know that sounds very like ridiculous, but you know, they are like, they're the ones they get chosen to do it. They get a lifetime appointment to like figure it out. And like, if you want to like, if you want to kick it down the road, then fine, but you know, it's going to come up again. So, and I think there is one, I think it's the same cake. Uh, the same company is actually has been brought up again. Like, yeah, it's going to come back. They knew it was going to come back. Uh, this, this particular, uh, this last session, this last, uh, you know, uh, this was a a really big deal for most cases. I'm not sure that a lot of them made the news the way that they probably should have. Uh, Title Seven, that was a really big one. What's Title Seven again? Um, discrimination on the basis of sex. Okay, all right. So they decided um, that discrimination on the basis of sex, quite literally and logically, means prevents discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and sexual identity right which they did just do they just did that right so they said that like because i i remember this from law school that like actually sexual orientation was not included in like the i i'm, I'm, I'm the terms wrong what was not included in the 
protected classes. Right. It was not. And so now it is. Because it literally only says you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. Right, which would be an man and woman. On the basis of sex, but the reason they argued back and forth, and they came up there saying, if you're going to discriminate against somebody because they're gay, then you necessarily have to take into account their sex. You okay. have to. Because, for example, if you have a man and a woman that are both attracted to men, mm -hmm. and you're only going to fire one, you necessarily have to take into account the man's sex. Because he's attracted to the same sex, so that's the that's kind of how they got out of it. Now, wait, I, I'm not following because I haven't read it, so like I'm not following. I don't I don't understand. Like, do, aren't there a lot more factors than just you know? Like, if I'm hiring, if I'm hiring, like I'll, I'll pick like something like like an office position, right? Like, I'm gonna hire an HR manager, right? Mm -hmm. And I have a gay guy and a woman. Right. Fill in the dots for me, or, or fill in the blanks for me. Right. So you have man and a woman, and you know. Uh, and you find out after, let's say you hired them both. Okay. You know, two paralegals, now you have a man and a woman, and they're both married to men. Okay. Right. And then you find out afterwards, and then you decide, well, I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I don't want to have a gay employee. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to fire the, the gay employee, the man who's married to a man. Okay. Only for that reason. Only for that reason. Okay. Well, not only, it's a but for cause. So, you know, that's, you know, from law school stuff, that's. But really, for him really being broad. a homosexual, I would not have fired him. Right. It's okay. very broad. I mean, okay. It could be just even a little factor, even if it is in the, you know, even if maybe they're not a great employee or something like that. As long as this is, a, you know, a factor, it's a problem. Okay. But let's say, now look at those people. Is there, what's different about those people? They're both, they're both married to men. They both do the same job. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. All so right. The only thing different about them is their sex. Got it. I mean, interesting. It's, it's, it's a really, it's a really, uh, the opinion in the case is actually a really interesting case. I agree that. The back and forth between them. Uh, but interestingly enough, Justice Gorsuch mm -hmm. wrote the opinion, the majority opinion. He, he did. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, he's, he, yeah, he's, he's a conservative for sure. Well, they, I think that they were anticipating a lot, maybe a little bit more conservative or something like that. But yeah. he's been, uh, he's been, Quite a, quite a well, I think he's. I think. I think Gorsuch is a. What do they call him? Originalist. I think he yeah, gets pretty. Textual. Yeah, he gets pretty. He gets pretty contextual. So I haven't that's read that opinion. Gets, that's but, they got there. Right, and so that, then that would make sense to me because like that's my opinion of him. Whereas like Kavanaugh, who's the other Trump pointing, seems to be. I, I feel like, and and when he was obviously his issues that we had when he was getting appointed aside, but like because I'm a conservative. So I thought when Kavanaugh got appointed, I thought he was more middle of the road, like like not like smacked out in the middle, but like more like I guess right of center. Whereas I, like like um like Thomas, oh, yeah. you know, is way, way out way. there. I thought Gorsuch is is more way out there. It like uh like uh, Rogers is more like I think Rogers is more like right of center. Or like Rogers might be actually like right in the center, frankly. Or is it Roberts? It's Roberts. Roberts is like right in the center, you know, because he he goes he goes back and forth a lot, you know. So um. But yeah, that would make sense if they were like going with a real contextualized ver or or a contextualized logic. It would make sense that courses would be that way. It did, it, but it was it, but really interestingly, the case that they took they took several several cases because they come from the circuit courts, so they compile them all together and stuff like that. But the um, I want to say it was the sixth or seventh. It was uh, Judge, what's that judge's name that quit a couple of years ago? He did all the 
And Kennedy? And no, the antitrust, not justice, I mean, the judge out of the sixth or the eighth, I can't think of his name right now. He developed most of the antitrust law in the way that we have it in the United States. Oh yeah, I don't I don't know. I this. can't think of his name right now. But he did a, he retired. It was a, that was all pretty dramatic just because he he went public with information that he thought that his circuit court of appeal was uh, given a bad shake to um, jailed or people who were in prison. So post conviction appeals and stuff like okay, that. Okay, all right. And so he he stepped down and then blasted them for it and then started an organization representing those people. <laughs> so that was, a, I mean, that was kind of a, the law is a crazy thing, man. It really is. It was, but what was really interesting though, in the circuit court, and of course, a lot more judges, they went on bonk. It's a whole crowd. You know, this when you get every judge in the court of appeals involved in a case, uh, which is not ordinary because most of the time there's only three for the listener that in a court of appeals, intermediate court, there's only three judges that decide a case. After they decide it, if there's some kind of issue that the non-participating judges want to fix, they ask to go on bank, which means you get every judge on the court, and it might be 10 or 15 or 20 people, you get them all into a room, and now we all have to decide. The thing with that many people, how many opinions do you have? You know? and, uh, and that's what one of them said. He was just saying, I think the Civil Rights Act of 1964 says discrimination based on sex, but I think that we should just come out and tell people publicly, we don't care what they thought in 1964. We think the judges think today it should mean you should not be allowed to discriminate against gay people. That's just just let's just be honest about that. Let's just say that. But of course, I mean that, that's not the judges' the role of the judiciary or anything like right. that. Right. So that's yeah. not what they're supposed to do. Right. You're so supposed to interpret the, the law. The yeah. okay with that. Right. Um, but that was just an interesting. But they point. found a way around it. I, I think we all knew it was going to happen at some point, right? You know, I, I've never really talked about it, but like my opinion was always that I remember in law school thinking that like there's no way sexual orientation is not going to make it into this into this bracket. We all like it's going to happen eventually, right? So by hook or by crook, and like I mean, you're an appellate lawyer more, way more than I'm an appellate lawyer, and like I was able to like look and see like if they could use. And I, if they can use the Commerce Clause to do all the things they can use the Commerce Clause to do, you know that they can find, you know, not having read this opinion, you know, doesn't really bother me because, like, I'm not, it's not gonna, I don't think it's going to affect me at all. But, you know, I do have, like, you know, I like to do the, I guess, the originalist interpretation of, like, laws and, like, Constitution and things like that. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I, I fall more in that camp. But at the same time, like, you know, we're a modern society and we need to develop and we need to, you know, do what we need to do. So it's like, you know, you know, where is that line? Like, I'm glad I'm not that guy. I'm glad I'm not the guy that has to figure myself <laughs> out. But it, it's, it seems to me like, you know, with, with this particular issue, it's like, you know, it was inevitable to me. Like, Right. I, I mean, and that's that's kind of the way that the dissenters went about it. And there were uh, only two, actually, I think, uh, out of Nine. So that's, I mean, that's pretty drastic when you think of like usually them being split down the middle on very contentious issues. But um, Justice um, Alito and Thomas were the only two to say, uh, no, we don't. We think discrimination based on sex means literally only based on sex. If you did not fire them because they were a woman or because they were a man, regardless of their attraction to anyone else or their identity, then that is the only reason that you should be able to fire. I mean, I've looked at this case, I've read it multiple times, all the opinions, and the logic on both sides, it seems kind of strong, even if I agree with only one, the result of only the majority. Right. 
but like, the, but it still it makes sense when you think of well, what what do you mean like? But does it? Uh, because that? I don't know why, but like when you said it again, now I'm thinking, right. well, wait a minute, like, but then you're only discriminating based on sex. You're not discriminating based on sexual orientation. orientation. Right. No, it, it could, I had to read it multiple times because I'm like, no, I think the other side has a point too. Like it says, just based on sex. Hmm. I didn't fire you. If you had that that man and that woman paralegal, they were both married to men, and you fired the one because of the sexual orientation. I didn't fire them because, well, let's say you hired three of them. You hired two men, one woman. Only one of the men was married to a man. The other two were married to the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. And you fired the one, the one man that was married to another man. So you didn't, you have another man there. You actually only discriminated based on their orientation, not their sex. Because you have another man there who's married to a woman. If they're all doing the same thing, then yes. Right. All doing it the same. Right. <laughs> this is such a such a thought experiment, right? Because like they're all doing they're the all exact working. same work in the exact same way. There's absolutely no differences except we have woman married to man, man married to woman, man married to man. I'm going to get rid of that guy because he's married to a man. Right. So in that situation, I would agree that's messed up. Like, cause, come on. Like, right, you know, right. come on. It is. It's just – I mean, like, whether you agree or disagree with, like, that lifestyle, like, if they're doing a good job, like – like what are you like? Like come on, what are you doing? Like that's just it's just mean. I know it sounds maybe like juvenile to say, but it's just mean. Like it's just it's just mean. Like why would you do that? Well, they did. I think like the arguments. And I didn't listen to the arguments. So one of the big cases was uh, the case out of Georgia. Actually, uh, in the Eleventh Circuit, it was uh, a funeral home. Okay. And this was the one based on gender identity, uh, not orientation. This was yeah. The one where they're now it's getting weird, right? Are they a man or are they a woman? Like they identify as a woman, but they're biologically a man. Like which are they? So like when you discriminate against them, what are you discriminating against? Or if you're discriminating, is it even discriminatory, right? Well, was, and there was no there was no dispute about that. They were uh, it was it, uh, I can't think of it. Amy was her name when she got to the Supreme Court, but that's that was not how that person always identified. Right. Uh, it it could have been Craig like two weeks before that or whatever, right, like years was, before uh, that. Yeah. A man, in a sense, and male in the way that we all understand it. He's um, biologically a male. Biologically male, until and then a certain at a certain date went to the employer and said, and this is a person you know, like at a funeral home, there's people that are shaking hands on the way, yeah, and stuff like that, mm -hmm. um, saying that you know I'm, I I identify as a woman and I felt like I have always been, but now I'm actually going to be outwardly expressing that, so I will dress professionally. Yeah. It's just that I will no longer wear your your regular man's suit i will dress like uh more professionally female. a woman right yeah and that was a problem for the employer and they said you know absolutely not you're fired uh, well they thought about it they, they did give us some time and then they said well no that's not gonna work. see but that's the that's the problem with um it's like a slippery slope right you know like how far do we go with this, you know? And like, where do we go with it? Like I, and I'll just tell you personally, like I've like given it a lot of thought because like, I mean, you know, you see the writings on the wall, like with the direction with these things, how far do we go with it? Like, again, I'm glad I don't have to make these decisions. I'm glad I'm not a Supreme court justice that has to worry about that stuff. You know, you know, I, I, I just, I just vote for the representative that I hope is going to do the best job for me and, and, and let, let the cards fall where they may. But, you know, to me, sexual orientation is different than, um, 
like gender dysphoria or whatever you want to call it, but like even them, like there, there are people out there that, that are saying that there is no, like sexuality is completely disconnected from your biological sex, right? So if there's a disconnection, and I'm, I am not an expert on this in any way, shape, or form, and I feel like we're getting into dangerous territory now. I try not to get into politics on this show, but like if there are a infinite number of sexualities, how the hell do you legislate that? I don't even know how to legislate that. Like, like what, like what is the discrimination? Like, are you allowed to like, if somebody like, I'm not trying to be um, tongue in cheek here, but like if someone identifies as like a dog and they only want to, and I'm sure you've heard this, like people who are like sexually attracted to balloons for some reason, like, have you heard of that? Like they're the, like, all right. So there's a, there's a show, there's a show on, on Nat Geo called taboo. And like one of the one of, one of the episodes, was that there there are people that are sexually aroused by balloons. It's an actual thing, right? So like, what if they're into that? What if they bring balloons to work with them? What if you like, I don't know, like, what if you work at a Chuck E. Cheese and you're like an upstanding person, but you own a Chuck E. Cheese, and this person who's into balloons is coming to Chuck E. Cheese? You know, like that's a problem, you know. But you are discriminating against them based on their sexual preference, which is, I know it's gonna sound crazy to say, is balloons. You know, like it's just it's a weird. It's a it, it, it's a it's a crazy it's a it, they're crazy concepts. It is definitely very confusing to me. I've spent a lot of time trying to to learn these things, and I my so my my partner is a, uh, a social worker who is you know head over heels has dived into all these you know social issues and things like that. Yeah, a lot more about it than I do. I don't know anything about it. She's always you know trying to explain things to me. I'm <laughs> look the most logical more than anything else. Right. That's not always easy to do. So, uh, but like you said, like you said, I, I'm not a professional either. But I'm just trying to learn as much as possible. And when it comes to reasoning things out, sometimes it gets a little bit tough. I mean, obviously, all the way to the Supreme Court, they can't agree. You know, like you know, it's it's still baffling people back and forth in their argument about how to resolve it. So, I don't know. It's it's it may be one of those what maybe one of those great issues of our time. You know, we'll just watch it unfold as we as we get older. You know, and then you know, like maybe we'll get like. Because, like, I was thinking about it the other day, and we need to wrap this up. Like, we're at, like, an hour and 50 minutes. Like, this one has definitely gone over. Like, we started getting into, like, like the appellate stuff. Like, the, like I find this stuff super interesting. Like, I'm not an appellate lawyer, so it's – Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, it, it's super interesting. But, like, like, my grandmother was born in, like, 1921, right? She passed away, like, a few years ago. Um, so she passed away, like, right after Trump got elected. Like, can you imagine – what a life, right? She was born in 1921. The depression hits like when she's like just old enough to start realizing what's going on. She was uh, raised in Kansas, born and raised in Kansas. You know, World War II, uh, you know, into like the roaring 50s, 60, the Cold War, right? 9-11, the roaring, the 80s, you know, the boom in the 80s, 9-11, the Great Recession in 07. And Trump gets elected and like that's when she like bows out. Like what a crazy, what a crazy ride, you know? Like what, what's it gonna be like for us, you know? Like I mean, we 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 got the, you know, uh, I was born in '84. I I'm, I'm assuming if you were a nurse for a while, we must have been born like around the same time. So all right, so you so you know like it's so, like the the '90s was a good period. The, the advent of the internet, right? Uh, the rise of Microsoft, the 9/11, Afghan wars, the recession. You know now we've got Trump and we've got COVID-19. You know like. It is it, like life is crazy, right? <laughs> it is definitely a wild ride. It's quite entertaining. It's definitely a good to be part of it. 
it's good to be it's a good time to be a lawyer <laughs> Yeah. You know, it is interesting stuff, man. It's just interesting stuff. So this is definitely the longest podcast that we've done. We should probably call it from here. My wife is already texting me and is like, hey, you should probably come home. <laughs> but we definitely need to do it again. Uh, I don't know. if you, Is there anything you want to plug? Uh, no, that's it. Just thank you very much for uh, letting me be a part of it. Thank you for, for, for coming and chit-chatting with me, man. I appreciate Absolutely. that. So, all right. Uh, I will plug Wagner Law. Uh, personal injury law firm where personal injury is personal. If you have any questions, it's car accidents, slip and falls. Uh, the way that I like to say it is that if you've been hurt and it's not your fault, I might be able to help you. So give me a call 727-685-8000 and I'm going to sign off. <laughs>